I'll be reading Genesis chapter 40. You want to join along with me? Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once he again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Good morning. My first year of college, I was a pretty new believer. I'd been a Christian about a year, and I got assigned to a dorm, the Chicano Theme House, in a big uh, secular university, Chicano Theme House in the 70s. So there were some pretty militant Chicanos in our dorm. I was fresh out of uh, Burns, Oregon, small town guy. <laughs> this was very eye-opening to me. <laughs> and uh, during my first couple weeks there, I had my dorm room all set up, and one of the guys walked in that I was getting to know a little bit, and he looked around my room and saw some of the things I had, and he said, 
You're not one of those Jesus freaks, are you? Well, I was uh, thoroughly intimidated. I spent most of that year hiding out in my foxhole with the other Christians in the dorm, keeping my head down to avoid any more insults, occasionally venturing out and throwing a hand grenade of truth out, hoping I would hit somebody, and then hiding, running back into my foxhole. It felt like a very hostile environment. And so I was just trying to survive. It's tough being a Christian in a hostile world. Many of us know that we're called to be a blessing. We're called to impact our world for Christ. We're called to be lights in the darkness. And we know that. But we aren't sure how to do that. And most of the time we just feel guilty because we're not witnessing enough. And so we hunker down in our Christian foxholes and just try to keep out of trouble. We feel intimidated and afraid and guilty most of the time. Well, I've got good news for all of us. (laughs) I want to take the pressure off. I want to show you a way to live our lives in a hostile world that is different than the way we tend to look at it, maybe. That'll give you, hopefully, a picture of how God can use us and how we can truly live as a blessing in a world that is increasingly becoming more hostile towards Christianity today. Joseph, in our passage that was just read, is an example for us for how we can take the pressure off and yet still be a blessing and live for God's kingdom. Now, in Genesis 40... Joseph has been taken as a slave. Remember, his brother sold him. He was taken as a slave to Potiphar's house, and then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife because he wouldn't sleep with her. And so he was thrown into jail. And at this point, he's been in jail quite a while. Between his slavery and his jail time, it's been 10 to 12 years. And this was not a pleasant jail. (laughs) Over in Psalm 105, verse 18, it says this about it. Describing Joseph, it says he was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. This was not a comfortable jail. This was a difficult place, and he was there for many, many years. And besides living in a jail, in a prison, he's living in a hostile pagan environment in the land of Egypt. Here was this little Hebrew shepherd boy taken at age 16 or so, And he's taken to this place of pagan gods, many, many, many different gods. They had, uh, Rod mentioned Ra, the sun god. But there were also gods for the wind and for war and fertility and many, many others. In fact, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. And every place throughout the land, he set up a statue of himself to remind people who was in charge, who who they were to worship. In this world, this strange, hostile world, sat Joseph 
in a prison. It would have been very easy, I think, for him to just keep his head low, hide out in a foxhole and just try to survive. But what we see today is he didn't choose to do that. (laughs) And I think we can learn a lot from him about how we can live as a blessing in this hostile world. So let's pray and we'll dig in. Lord, thank you for the examples of Scripture, how real they are. Thank you for Joseph. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is in every one of us, and therefore we can depend on you to be Joseph's right where we are, in the families, in the communities, in the jobs, in the hostile places that you have placed us. Help us learn how to do that today. May your spirit open our eyes and our hearts that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we see about Joseph that I stands out to me is that he built loving relationships with the unbelievers around him. That's the first observation I make that we need to begin to understand a little bit. He built loving relationships with the unbelievers around him rather than hiding out. Now, the ones that are mentioned in this passage are the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer and the baker were two of the most trusted people in Pharaoh's realm. Why is that? Because they provided the cup and the drink for him. And the cupbearer's job was to taste the food, and in particular the wine, the cup, any drink that came to him to make sure it wasn't poisoned. It was his job to take the poison for Pharaoh. That meant that he had to be trusted because if anybody could get to him, they could get to Pharaoh. So it was a very important position. And of course the baker baked the food. He provided the food. He was the cook for Pharaoh. So these had to be very trusted positions. And what we find at the beginning of this passage is they deeply offended Pharaoh. We don't know what they did, but they completely lost his trust. He was upset at them. In fact, it says that he was enraged at them. He'd had it with them, so he threw them into jail. Now, these guys are nothing but trouble in terms of if you want to get ahead in life, right? If I were Joseph, I'd probably stay away from him because they were on Pharaoh's bad side. He was furious at them, and if I wanted to get out of jail, I probably wouldn't hang around them a whole lot. He had good reason to stay away from them, to keep his distance, to just do his job. He could be guilty by association just by being around them. Now, we see that he was put in charge of them. He had done a good job. The warden of the prison had said, you know, I'm going to give you some responsibilities here over other prisoners because you're a responsible young man. And so he had some responsibility and he says, I want you to especially take care of these two guys. Keep an eye on them. You're over them. So he couldn't avoid them totally, but he could have just worked to keep his nose clean. (laughs) But here's the interesting thing. He didn't. He didn't just do what would have been self-protective here. Notice verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them 
Or in the NIV, he attended them. He ministered to them. He served them. Now, if you look at this Hebrew word, it's very interesting. It's an interesting Hebrew word because it's used many times in the Old Testament. And as far as I could see, every time in the Old Testament, it's used either of serving someone who's way above you in authority and in power, like Pharaoh, others who have a position of authority, a king, or most of the time in the scriptures it's used as kind of a religious term of serving God, directly serving God, as either as a priest or a Levite. And that's how it's mostly used in the scripture. This is the only time that I could find that the word is used of serving somebody who's under you. Isn't that interesting? Joseph is over them in the prison, and yet it says what he chose to do was serve them and treat them as royalty. To serve them as if they were God himself. That's the word that's used here. He could have used many other words, but that's what's used to describe Joseph here. Isn't that interesting? Rather than avoiding them, (laughs) he did what he could to treat them as royalty. What does this say about Joseph? (laughs) That he treated them like royalty even though they were danger to him. That he served them like he was serving God himself. Isn't that interesting? It reminds me of a passage in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is describing this parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he says this, starting in verse 34, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It's a powerful passage that says, Jesus says that when we care for those who are the least of these, the ones that tend to be disregarded by others in our society, and you care for them and treat them like royalty, like Joseph does here, you, in a very real sense, I don't quite understand it, but in a very real sense, you are ministering to Jesus himself. You are serving him. You are caring for him. Who are the least of these in your life? Who are the ones that tend to be disregarded by other people? Maybe the servants in our culture, the waitresses, the bank tellers, the people you run into maybe on the street, those in prison, secretaries, 
those who can't maybe benefit you, widows, the lonely, the disabled. And we could go on and on. But Jesus says when you care for them and treat them as royalty like you're serving God himself, in some very real sense you are. Joseph had a heart for that, a heart to care for those around him, to make a difference in their lives. You see, I think this is a beautiful picture of what living as a blessing in a hostile world is to look like. It's simply building loving relationships with unbelievers around us, wherever you are, wherever they're in your life. Joseph didn't get to choose where he was. He was thrown into prison, but right where he was, feeling shackled, he was shackled, (laughs) yet in that place where he was trapped, he loved those that were around him. I don't know how you feel trapped, shackled, imprisoned in your life, trapped into a life maybe you wouldn't have chosen. But I guarantee you God has a plan in that and he's placed around you people that he wants you to treat as royalty. To love well. It may be difficult family members. It may be all kinds of people. And when you treat people better than they deserve, when you treat them as royalty, when you seek to treat them better than they treat you, then Christ is loved and honored through that. Notice the end of verse 4. It says they were in confinement for some time, many days. This was a long time. This was, in fact, probably years. And yet he kept at it. He kept at it. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes commitment. And it takes building a relationship that I think is mutual. Down in verse 14, notice what he says when after he's answered the dream of the cupbearer, Joseph says, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. You see, he builds a mutual relationship. He shares vulnerably. I don't want to be here. I don't like being in prison. Please help me. You can help me. When you go to be with Pharaoh, please remember me. Don't forget me. Joseph shares his longing, his heart, his need with the cupbearer. That's part of building relationships is that you truly build a mutual relationship. You just don't just have a one-way relationship, but you care for them, you love them. I described my first year of college. At the end of that year, six of us decided that we wanted to go in a dorm together and try to make a difference for Jesus. So our university had a numbering system, and you drew a number from 1 to 5,000 to get your housing assignment. So I got elected to actually draw the number. Lowest number is best. For our six people, I drew number 4928. (laughs) Needless to say, we didn't get our first choice, or second, or third, or fourth, or... We were placed in what was considered the worst dorm on campus, Burbank Hall. It was like a prison. Cement walls, cold. It was supposed to have been torn down like 10 years before because it was so bad, but they just hadn't done it yet. But let me tell you, I learned some things that year. As we just reached out to people in our dorm, I learned a lot about what it means to love other people. 
And a number of people came to Christ in that dorm who are pastors today, elders, walking with God. I mean, God did great things. The environment really doesn't matter, folks. If we learn to build loving relationships and let God work through that, amazing things can happen. Jill Briscoe, who was the women's conference speaker this year, shared in one of her messages that one of the things she prays often is she prays, Lord, let these people like me. Seems like a strange prayer, doesn't it? But as she described it, she said, I want them to like me because if they like me, hopefully they'll be attracted to the gospel. You see, if we learn to be people that others like, (laughs) not for our sake, but for God's sake, if we learn to love them in a way that makes them know that God loves them, then we will be living as a blessing right where we are. Rich Mullins, who's no longer alive, Christian song artist, wrote a song to his son. And the chorus begins this way. Let mercy lead. Let love be the strength in your legs. And in every footprint that you leave, there will be a drop of grace. You see, if we learn to let love be the power that drives us, that if love is the strength in our legs, if love is what motivates us and keeps us going, then in every footprint that we leave, there'll be a drop of grace. It makes me think about what kind of footprints we leave. As you walk through life, you're leaving footprints in people's lives. What do they experience from you? Do they experience, do you leave a footprint that's dirty and messy? That's full of the stain of selfishness? Tainted by the world? It's all about you? Or when you walk into people's lives, do they experience grace? Love that they don't deserve? Do you treat them better than they deserve? In every footprint that you leave, is there a drop of grace, a fragrance? So people are wondering what it is about you that's different when you treat people like they don't deserve. So what I see, first of all, in Joseph is he builds loving relationships with the cupbearer and the baker. Secondly, as he does that, he begins to watch for God's working. Second observation, he watches for God's working. Verse 6 and 7, when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, says they'd had a dream the night before. And behold, they were dejected. That word has the meaning of its use of storms, of being churned up. These guys were just churned up. They'd had this dream and they didn't know how to understand it and they're kind of overwhelmed by it, but... Notice that Joseph has spent time with them. He knows them well, and he notices right away something's wrong. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who are with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Literally, why do you look so bad? (laughs) That's what it means. What's going on? What's going on in your life? 
just a little historical background. In Egypt, you see, it was, it was a world in which they understood there was a spiritual realm, but they didn't know much about it. But they really believed that dreams were one of the primary ways to make connection with the spiritual world. And so they actually had entire schools to train people how to interpret dreams. It was so important in their culture that they had specialists and experts around, and they had books written on how to interpret certain elements in dreams. But these guys tell Joseph, well, we have these dreams, but there's no expert here. No one to interpret for us. You see, they were in a world that was full of darkness, and they were looking for some kind of spiritual connection, some kind of life, and they didn't know how to get it. Folks, every person around you who doesn't know Jesus is desperately looking for some kind of spiritual connection. They're living in the darkness, and they're trying to figure out how in the world do I connect with the spiritual reality around us because they know it's there. They can try to ignore it, pretend it isn't there, but deep down they know it's there. And we have the answer to that. So Joseph is watching them. He sees what's happened. And you see, if you build relationships with others, if you take time to do that and just watch for God to work, God will work in their lives. You see, he's already drawing them to himself. You don't have to make anything happen. You just watch for what God's already doing. And as you build relationships, believe me, you will get opportunities to share truth. Because God is already at work drawing them to himself. And we just get to watch and then step in. And notice what Joseph does. He pursues them. He doesn't just see that they're dejected after God gave them these dreams. But he he asks, he just asks, what's up? Why do you look so bad today? Did you have a bad night's sleep or what? (laughs) Eventually, God will be at work in that person's life if you build a relationship. Maybe they'll go through a tough time. Maybe they'll go through a great time. Maybe some struggle, some loss or whatever. But you will have an opportunity to speak truth into their lives. I don't know how many times I've simply been at a restaurant and I've started chatting, making conversation with the waitress and I've heard so many stories. Everybody has a story. Like the one lady who just burst into tears. I just asked, how are you? What's going on? And she said, she told me about losing her child who had died and and she was struggling with that and it had been six months ago, but she was still having a hard time with it and we had an opportunity to talk about it. We had an opportunity to encourage her. Everybody has a story and if you just are curious about that, you will have opportunity to enter into their lives and begin to share truth with them. But it does take time. It takes prayer. It takes watching. Now, see how, this, how much difference this is than contact evangelism? Where you just walk up to somebody you don't know and just share Christ. Now, some people are gifted at that. Howard Hendricks says maybe one in ten people are gifted that way. I'm not one of those ten percent. Probably most of you aren't either. But when you just build relationships and you watch for God to work, you'll find that God is at work. He already has been at work. He gave them a dream in this case. And so Joseph simply points them to God. Well, God has interpretation. It's okay that there's no dream expert here. 
God is the one who gives interpretations. God's the answer you're struggling with. That's really all we have to say. As we see people who are struggling, who are needy, whom God has already begin to, begun to draw, you just say, you know, God's the answer. God's the answer. Notice how this takes the pressure off. God is the one who is already working. We're just keeping our eyes open so that we can participate in what he is already doing. We get in trouble, though, and we feel responsible that somehow it's up to us to convince somebody. It's up to us to save people. That's not our job. But we get the privilege of participating in what God is already doing in the person's life, and then, then it's exciting. And then we move on to the next step. And my third observation about Joseph is that he speaks God's truth into their lives. In verses 9 through 19, you get them sharing the dream, and all he does is say, well, this is what God says about that, about your situation. This is God's truth about that. And notice he isn't afraid to speak very bluntly. (laughs) It's kind of humorous. You know, the cupbearer, he says, hey, your head's going to be lifted up, and you get to go, and you're going to be working with Pharaoh again. You'll get to serve him his cup again. And so the baker thinks, wow, this is pretty good news, so maybe my dream's positive too. So he shares the dream, and Joseph's response to him is, well, within three more days, verse 19, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree. The word there is really impale you. Impale you on a big spike and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Good news for modern man. (laughs) Sometimes we need to say hard things to people though, don't we? You know, if you keep going in this direction, you will face God's judgment. Sometimes we need to say encouraging things like he did to the cupbearer, but sometimes we need to speak truth that's confrontational because people need to hear it because they are rushing headlong into hell. And sometimes we need to say, if you keep going this way, you're going to die in hell forever. Please turn around and give your life to Christ. We have a message that is the truth for every human being. Don't be shy about that. Don't be intimidated about that. When God opens a door, you just love people and watch for God to work. And when God opens a door, speak truth. Speak truth. And maybe the truth is hard to hear. Oh, by the way, the birds are going to eat your flesh away. Or maybe it's, you know what, you're going to be restored. But whatever it is, we have the truth about humanity, and we need to be willing to speak it. People need the truth. They're desperate. Whether they look desperate or not, they're desperate to hear truth because they're living in darkness. And God is already preparing their hearts for it. Doesn't mean everybody will respond. In fact, that's my observation number four, is that Joseph leaves the results to God. It's not up to us to convert anybody or to change anybody or... Our job is simply to be available, speak truth when God opens the doors, love people, and at the end of the story, it all depends on God. It doesn't depend on us. So we leave the results to him. Now, the end of the story is that exactly what Joseph said would happen, happened. 
the cupbearer got restored after three days. You know, Farrell threw a big party. It was his birthday. He liked big birthday parties. So the balloons are up and all the, you know, the banners and everything. And he decides, you know, this is the day where uh, I'm going to make some decisions about some of my prisoners. And he lets the cupbearer come back, but the baker he has executed. And that last phrase at the end had to be very tough for Joseph. The cupbearer was restored, and it says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Later on, two years later, God would use the cupbearer to get Joseph out of prison. But Joseph didn't see any results right away. Later on, he gets to work with the cupbearer in Pharaoh's presence. We don't know if the cupbearer ever came to believe in Yahweh, the true God. We don't know if there were results, but you know what? That's not up to us. And it didn't turn out so well for Joseph, but you know what? That's not the point. The point is, can we live as a blessing right where we are? If we're willing to do that, God will use us, and in the end, he will bless us, as we'll see with Joseph. Back in chapter 12, verse 3, God made the great promise to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And in Galatians, Paul says, we are heirs to that promise. God wants to use every one of us to be a blessing to this world that so desperately needs to hear truth. It's dying in the darkness. He calls us to be his people and to join in the great privilege of living as a blessing in this world. Joseph had a huge impact on his world, as we will see in the next chapter or two. A morally corrupt, pagan, hostile environment, he had a huge impact. So can we. How did he have a great impact? Because he, right in prison, right in the worst circumstance, he just loved the people that were around him, watched for God to work. When he saw what God was doing, he responded by speaking truth, and he left the results to God. What a wonderful picture for us to how to be a blessing. And so I want you to think for a moment as we prepare to take communion together. How do you treat the least of these around you? What kind of footprint do you leave? If I were to walk up to somebody you just ran into in the store, the teller at the bank, the waitress at the restaurant, the neighbor you don't like how they take care of their fence, And I would ask them, what kind of footprint did that person leave in their contact with you? What would they say? Let's just take a moment and pray silently and just consider what God may be speaking to you this morning about what it means to live as a blessing.
Lord, as we walk through life, may love be the strength in our legs. May love be the power that motivates us, not because we are so loving, but because you are so loving. May you love people through us. May we submit ourselves to you so that you may love through us, so that every footprint we leave might contain a drop of grace. And Lord, as we turn now to take communion together, we recognize that the only reason we are your children, the only reason we get the privilege of living as a blessing in this world is because you came and died for us. You gave us life as a gift and you promised to live your life through us as we learn to submit to you. And so as we turn to take communion together now, we do so with grateful hearts, recognizing it's all about you. It's not about us. So we give you praise and thanks and we gratefully take this bread and this cup as a gift of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We do take communion together because Jesus commanded us to. As a reminder, we need constant reminding of where our whole identity comes from as believers. It's in him and in the cross what he did for us. If you're a visitor today and you know Jesus Christ, we practice open communion. You are welcome to join us. We invite you to partake of this supper with us as we remember what Jesus did for us as we partake of his life together. You know, the chief cupbearer was called to take the poison for Pharaoh if need be. Jesus took the poison for us, the poison that was meant for us. We should have drunk the poison of sin and death, and he took it on himself. So as we pass the bread and then we'll take it together, rejoice in him as the one who took your punishment on himself. Let's give thanks, Lord. Thank you for this bread. Thank you that you are the bread of life. We have life because you chose to submit to death for us, to drink the poison we deserve. And so for that, we thank you and we give you praise. For it's in your precious name that we can even come to you. Amen. Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Let's stand together and I'll close us in prayer. Prayer, Lord, we stand together right now as your people, a redeemed people, called people, called to live as a blessing. So as we go forth today, may we be a blessing in this world that you have placed us. May you love people through us in a way that draws people to you. May we leave a footprint of grace everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.